episode 107. Before I get to discussing the military operations that evolved into the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, which itself evolved into the British Antarctic Survey, I need to pay some attention to what Nazi crewed merchant raiders were doing in the world's oceans during the Second World War. And then I need to pay more attention to the human story of the Falkland Islands than this series previously offered. First, the Germans. Following the patterns set in the First World War, German naval engineers put a lot of energy and ingenuity into retrofitting merchant vessels into warships in disguise. Merchant raiders left German-controlled ports, mostly in the form of converted refrigerated cargo vessels, previously used for transporting perishables north from the tropics, their vocation making them quite fast compared to similar-sized vessels of the era, reducing the chance of the cargo spoiling in transit. Some accounts cite nine in total, where others recount two waves of six ships. I don't know why that discrepancy exists. I'll leave it to the naval historians to pipe up and show me the thread I need to pull in order to find out. The shipyards of Kiel and Bremen retrofitted turret-mounted 15cm naval guns, waterline torpedo tubes, launching gantries and retrieval derricks for reconnaissance float planes, mine-laying facilities and anti-aircraft gun arrays. All this military iron received clever camouflage, hiding the death deck among the standing rigging and behind false bulkheads and bulwarks. Thus disguised and flying false colours, the ships ran the British blockades of the North Sea, otherwise denying German-flagged vessels access to the Atlantic, and spread themselves around the world, seizing or sinking merchant ships in the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian and Southern Oceans. The merchant raiders kept themselves fueled and vittled from the prize ships they captured, and from prearranged shore depots, or by rendezvousing with other merchant ships, or the large supply U-boats, Admiral Dernitz's milch cows. The raiders were highly effective in the early years of the war the Nazis kicked off, causing disruptions to trade and supply disproportionate to the investment of resources and mariners they represented. But as the war in Europe turned against Germany, the resources required to sustain the merchant raider fleet read, replace, as one by one the ships pushed their luck too far and sank as the result of their final engagement, could no longer be spared. Those raiders that encountered dedicated fighting vessels usually couldn't make enough speed to avoid a fight, and lacking armour, they didn't stand much chance of surviving an exchange of fire for long. Most of the time. 15 centimetre naval guns are nothing to be sneezed at, but it came as a huge surprise and remains a source of national anger and chagrin in Australia that the Cormoran, while sunk in the exchange itself, managed to sink the Australian light cruiser HMAS Sydney, a more heavily armed and armoured vessel. In a brief engagement off the West Australian coast in November 1941, All 645 crew of the Sydney died when their ship sank from the Cormoran's gunnery. Around 300 of the Cormoran's crew survived the loss of their ship in lifeboats, life rafts and workboats, 20 crew dying in the exchange of fire and a further 60 drowning after one of the life rafts sank. 
Close to the hub of ice coffee interest, the Royal Navy, alert to German merchant raider habits since the First World War, sent the submarine HMS Olympus to the Crozets and the Prince Edward Islands in the Austral summer of 1939. Briefed to seek out and fuck up any shore-based depots or support stations established to aid the merchant raider fleet, the Olympus found no evidence of German activity by dint of turning up on the Antarctic scene too early. The Penguin and the Atlantis merchant raiders used a depot in a Kerguelen Island fjord to bunker fuel and to victual in 1940 and 1941, demonstrating the validity of the British hunch about the German ships using remote southern ocean islands as bases of operation. While the Royal Australian Navy never located the depot itself, the HMAS Australia laid mines in the likely approaches and anchorages, thereby preventing German activity there beyond 1941. It's part of the story of 20th century warfighting that the mines laid 80 years ago still play a role in determining shipping movements in Kerguelen waters. Mines are a very effective means by which to deny territory, resources and opportunities to an enemy, but they don't suddenly turn inert just because hostilities come to an end, more of which anon. Following its conversion to merchant raider, the Penguin departed Bremen in June 1940, beginning an almost 60,000 nautical mile cruise lasting just shy of a year. Among many other operations during that year, the Penguin captured the bulk of the Norwegian whaling factory vessels operating near South Georgia in mid-January 1941. The factory and transport vessels Harpon, Torshammer, Vestfjord, Svenfern II, Lansing, Olvega and the Pelagos and their associated braces of chasers were operating under British commission that summer. The Torshammer having recently offloaded most of its processed whale oil and a significant fraction of its fuel to the rest of the fleet, evaded capture, but four of the other large ships, working close to one another in dense fog, couldn't do much to resist the penguin, hunting them by homing in on their radio transmissions. The penguin approached each in turn, announcing via loudhailer that any attempt to transmit a warning to the rest of the fleet would prompt heavy shelling from the hardware on display as the raider loomed out of the fog and pointedly pointed its guns at the whaling vessel. Armed prize crews went aboard those vessels the Penguin could spare them to, such a large capture catching the Germans short-handed. The boarders assured the whalers they would be paid by the Reich for their oil and for further whaling. This never played out, and the ships, other than the uncaptured Torshammer, and a number of chasers that ignored unsettlingly worded radio orders to return to their factory ship ran in convoy to Tristan de Cuna and a rendezvous with the German supply vessel Nordmark. The Torshammer sent one of its chasers to South Georgia, where the radio transmitter at Point Edwards got word of the capture of the whaling fleet out to the owners, the charterers, and the Royal Navy, prompting a flurry of finger pointing. Norwegian interests blamed the British as chartering interests, for leaving the fleet undefended. The Royal Navy, contending that the fall of France necessitated the bulk of armed vessels operate in the North Atlantic to keep the sea lanes open in the face of the Kriegsmarine activity, criticised the Norwegians for not keeping their movements secret, 
suspecting the Germans knew what ships to find where, based on Norwegian transmissions recounting exactly that information broadcast out of the USA, and claiming they should have kept their own radio transmissions between ships more circumspect. No matter who held most responsibility for the undefended ships falling into German hands, Norwegian interests, acting under the Norwegian government in exile, wouldn't risk sending more whaling ships and crews south until January 1944. Two British armed merchant ships, the HMS Carnarvon Castle and the HMS Queen of Bermuda, were in the South Atlantic searching for the ghost ship Penguin. The Carnarvon Castle engaged the merchant raider Tor, but came off worse for the encounter with 28 crew dead, another six wounded and much of its armament out of commission, and headed to Montevideo for repairs, making use of steel taken from the scuttled German heavy cruiser Graf Spey. News of the captured Norwegian whaling ships reached Stanley while the Queen of Bermuda lay alongside the wharf. Shore leave was cancelled and the converted luxury liner made way south to confront the Germans. The conversion of the requisitioned liner saw seven 152mm and two 76mm naval guns, in addition to anti-aircraft guns, catapult gear for two Seafox floatplanes, and torpedo nets fitted. This gave the Queen of Bermuda a greater weight of fire than the Penguin above the waterline. But the Penguin could fire torpedoes from two waterline tubes. But the Queen of Bermuda might fend off torpedoes with its retrofitted torpedo nets. The Penguin could make 17 knots, where the Queen of Bermuda could pull 20 knots with all stops out. All up, the two ships weren't too badly mismatched, but the Southern Ocean naval battle that lay in the offing never eventuated. The Penguin and its prizes were already away north, and the Queen of Bermuda, the largest ship past the 60th southern parallel to that date, gave a degree of escort presence to the remaining British chartered factory ships, the Torshaven, the Svenfern II, and the Lansing, and their chasers. Their whaling contracts extended by a month by British investors, eager to war prof- I mean, eager to ensure the British Isles didn't run short of the whale oil necessary to keep the wheels of war-footing industries turning. Among the islands at Tristan de Cunha, the Nordmark supplied prize crews for those vessels the Penguin hadn't been able to staff, while the refrigerated vessel the Nordmark towed behind it, the Herzogen, replenished the Penguin's pantry. The Herzogen burnt up all its wooden structures, keeping the refrigeration system operating, and was scuttled once its cargo was distributed among the German merchant raiders' largest capture of the war, totaling 36,000 tonnes of ships, 20,000 tonnes of whale oil, and 10,000 tonnes of fuel oil. The factory ships went to Europe, and some of the chasers retasked as German mine layers. In early March, the Queen of Bermuda received orders to visit the Hectoria Whaling Company facilities at Whalers Bay, Deception Island, to see if the Germans made use of the buildings and consumables left behind when the whalers abandoned the site in 1930. While the shore party found no sign of German occupation or lading, they burnt what coal they found on site and blew holes in the storage tanks to deny any future German visitors access to the fuel or oil remaining on site. Their handiwork still shows at the base of the rusting tank walls, and an image of the damage will feature in the blog post for this episode. 
on site. The torn metal provides a neat hook on which to hang part of the story of the human history of Whalers Bay, but the tanks won't stand forever, because rust never sleeps. While the British brought the flames that saw the utility of the structures burn out, it's the weather and salt sea air that is making them fade away. I read one account that recorded the Royal Navy orders as requiring the accommodations be made uninhabitable more than the pervasive smell of the place, described as a mix of tannery, fishmeal plant and bovril, already made Whalers Bay. The dryness of the wood constituting the buildings would have made setting fires the cheapest option, and if expense was of no concern, the buildings could have served as targets for gunnery practice. Yet the buildings of the era still stand sufficient that you could hole up in them now if you were really pressed for somewhere to get out of the weather. Hmm, foreshadowing. As opposed to, hmm, bovril, which you'll never hear me say. At least the tannery scent would have masked the bovril smell a bit. After their demolition visit to Deception Island, the crew of the Queen of Bermuda returned to providing armed support to what remained of the whaling fleet throughout their extra month of contracted Southern Ocean extraction, and then returned to convoy escort duties as the whaling ships headed north. The Queen of Bermuda remained an auxiliary cruiser until 1943, when the Lend-Lease scheme saw her replaced by ships built to the warfighting mould from the keel up, and her size prompted a shift to troop transport. On December 7, 1941, Japan's naval airstrikes against the United States naval installation and ships at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii saw the 10-year-long Japanese Imperial Initiative break out of the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. While a Japanese invasion of the Falkland Islands might sound preposterously far-fetched today, we're not operating in the fog of war. Successful naval air attacks against Pearl Harbour sounded preposterously far-fetched to the people responsible for defending against such an event, but happened nonetheless. British interests posited that Japan might value the Falklands as a base from which to police maritime traffic rounding Cape Horn and operating out of the River Plate, largely because that's what Britain valued the Falklands for. That an empire? What? Ha ha, don't you know? With only a few hundred able-bodied men in a home guard-style militia and wielding hardware three steps behind the cutting edge of military technology, the Falklands could have fallen out of British control through the efforts of a small landing force. So the Royal Navy stepped onto the breach by asking the US Navy if they would mind establishing a naval presence in the South Atlantic to protect that beacon of far-flung Britishness and thereby protect the South Atlantic shipping routes. The US Navy was busy and told Britain, in the politest diplomatic terms, to go boil its head on a your empire, your responsibility line of reasoning. Entreaties that the fall of the Falklands might harm US shipping movements more than British ones cut no ice, and Winston Churchill ordered that the islands receive sufficient a boost in garrison force form as might act as a deterrent. Not enough to successfully fend off a full-scale invasion, but enough to require any force sent against the islands multiply up to a significant drain on the resources of the attackers. I think what the US Navy strategists in question recognised was that where their British counterparts used the label Japanese in articulating their fears about the safety of the Falkland Islands, what they'd meant to say was Argentine. 
and here's where I need to backtrack to a significant extent to give you a potted history of the 12,000 square kilometer mixed bag of igneous, metamorphic and sedimentary elements of the Patagonian plate, sitting above chart datum, just north of the convergence and just east of the 58th West Meridian. Note that I've dropped the name for the moment, as that still hasn't reached equilibrium in the geopolitics of Antarctic matters, and I'm going back as close to the start of the contesting of the contested ground as I can manage. Archaeological evidence demonstrates Fuegians reached the island group over the past few thousand years, but no evidence so far indicates anyone found the place sufficiently alluring to warrant establishing a settlement, or at least surviving very long. As with all South Atlantic and Southern Ocean discoveries of the period, it's hard to pin down who saw what first and when. English mariner John Davis is given credit for the first modern era sighting of land in the region in 1592, while sailing aboard the Desire. Davis, who invented the Backstaff navigational angle measuring device, precursor by several iterations to the sextant, and who made several attempts on the Northwest Passage, Davis Strait between Baffin Island and Greenland, receiving his name, stocked the ship's larder with penguins while in the area, but provides no record of landings. Landings and observations recorded in 1690 by English mariner John Strong aboard the Welfare compellingly established the existence of two sizable landmasses separated by a sound that Strong named after one of the sponsors of the Welfare's voyage to South America, the 5th Viscount of Falkland. French mariner Louis-Anton de Bougainville established a colony, Port Louis, named after King Louis XV, Louis the Beloved, successor to and great-grandson of the Sun King, Louis XIV, on the eastern island in 1764. Bougainville named the archipelago the Isles Malouinis, after St. Malo in Brittany, itself named for an evangelical Welsh Christian follower of Brendan the Navigator, which is a damn good sobriquet. Matt the Navigator. I've been called a lot worse. And that's just by family members earlier today. In 1766, English mariner John McBride accepted a commission to establish a colony in the islands. Port Egmont, named after an Irish peer, the Earl of Egmont, on Saunders Island, and to let the French know about the British dominion over the whole landmass, which the French colonists politely declined to acknowledge, having recently begun negotiations to sell what they already thought of as their own land to the Spanish. The Spanish took over Port Louis, renaming it Puerto Soledad, a name whose provenance eludes me, in 1767. In 1770, the Spanish settlers captured Port Egmont and only averted war with Britain by uncapturing it again the following year. To pinch a phrasing from Phil Wickens, in 1774, the British colonists put the cat out, left the note for the milkman, and departed the islands after five armed ships carrying over a thousand armed Spanish troops showed up and told them to. The Spanish Viceroy of the Rio de la Plata saw this as the English ceding territory, though the English later counted that a plaque the colonists mounted at Port Egmont, proclaiming the territory as belonging to King George III, meant they hadn't really taken their finger off the piece and that it was still their move. 
Puerto Soledad mostly served as a prison camp. In 1806, the British occupation of Buenos Aires as part of their campaign against Napoleonic France, to which Spain, and therefore what became the Republic of Argentina in 1826, held allegiance. This prompted the Puerto Soledad governor to return home. The Spanish troops garrisoned on the island departed in 1811 to aid in the defence of Buenos Aires, leaving the place deserted but for small numbers of fishers and gauchos working the sea and the landscape. A lead plaque announced the Spanish dominion, indicating they never took their finger off the piece and it was still their turn. American privateer David Jewett, employed by the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata, arrived at the islands in 1820 to tell anyone anchored thereabouts of the territorial claim asserted by his backers, but with no permanent settlement, no one much cared. This changed in 1826, when German merchant Louis Vernet arranged with the Spanish territorial claimants to re-establish the settlement at Puerto Soledad and to manage the local natural resources on their behalf. After three years, with the colony slowly growing, Buenos Aires declared Vernet the governor and military commander of the islands. It was while attempting to regulate sealing in the waters under his remit, in 1831, that Vernet told some US mariners what they could and could not do, and that sort of talk never sits well with US extraction industry entrepreneurs while they know a US Navy vessel lies at their back. The snowflakes yelled, Am I being detained? and dobbed on Vinay for infringing on their God-given rights as citizens of America, and the crew of the USS Lexington raided the colony in retaliation. US Navy Commander Silas Duncan declared the government of the islands dissolved in an incident that was never ever repeated in the history of the United States of America. Ever. A garrison sent from Buenos Aires to prevent such an accidental misunderstanding of whether or not American sealers were being detained ever happened again, didn't do what it was sent to do, mutinying against the leadership within a year of arriving. British troops arrived in 1833 to contest the Spanish territorial claim, kicking off the 150 years of tension between Britain and what only recently became the Republic of Argentina that culminated in... Well, we'll get to that in due course. Vernet returned as colony leader with Matthew Brisbane, a sailor and sealer who'd sailed alongside James's Waddell and Ross, and who knew Robert Fitzroy through an exciting maritime career featuring three shipwrecks at high southern latitudes, as his deputy. In 1833, a group of eight gauchos and former convicts, unhappy with Vernet's promissory notes that Brisbane used in paying for their labour, where they thought silver the only appropriate currency, mutinied, killing a number of senior settlers, Brisbane among them. The rest of the settlers ran and hid until British forces arrived to restore order. During the second visit of the HMS Beagle, Captain Fitzroy expressed his dismay at finding Brisbane's feet sticking out of the soil of a shallow grave, the noble mariner's knobbly knees gnawed on by dogs. I don't know if Brisbane's knees were knobbly, but I love alliteration above all else and allow such embellishments. In 1840, Britain declared the islands a crown colony, a concept renamed a British Overseas Territory in 2002 
after a 20-year spell going by the label British Dependent Territory. Ah, sweet, sweet solipsism. Changing the world by fiat, one relabeling at a time. Scottish settlers, accustomed to near-constant horizontal sleet and livestock regularly blowing into the sea, began arriving and established pastoral practices largely unchanged through to the present. Bringing this story up to date would require more attention be given to the establishment of the Republic of Argentina, and lots of farming using some Patagonian pastoral practices overlaid on a Scottish mindset, fishing, and profits made off the wreck trade, wherein ships given a complete reaming by Cape Horn would limp into Port Jackson, later renamed Stanley, to receive a pittance for their saltwater-ruined cargo and what was left of their vessel, or pay the local shipwrights to keep them afloat for the remainder of their voyage, a lucrative industry in Stanley until steam power saw vessels round the Cape with increasing speed and safety. As already recounted in the series, the Falkland Island dependencies came into being in 1908 by the application of more solipsism in the form of letters patent issued by King Edward VII. In 1914, the Battle of the Falkland Islands saw the Royal Navy fleet steam out of Stanley and defeat an Imperial German Navy squadron, itself having steamed round the Horn, having dealt the Royal Navy a serious black eye in the Battle of Coronel, off the coast of Chile, both battles reinforcing the islands as an important node for control of the South Atlantic and as a Royal Navy staging point for entry into the South Pacific. In 1939, this concept received further buttressing when HMS Exeter damaged in and forced to retire from the Battle of the River Plate, the first major naval engagement of the Second World War in which three British cruisers trapped the German Navy heavy cruiser Graf Spey in the Rio del Plata estuary arrived in Stanley for repairs otherwise unavailable to Royal Navy vessels operating so far south in the Atlantic. With Argentina contesting British dominion over the islands since 1774, and protesting every step Britain took to try to label its way to clear ownership, and nominally neutral in the conflict between Axis and Allied powers, though leaning Germany's way if push ever came to shove, the Japanese threat, with hindsight, does look like an almost credible cover story for a need to reinforce the defences against possible invasion by Argentine military forces. With the USA rightly ignoring British entreaties to do the job, a battalion of British soldiers and their associated hardware, previously slated to head to India, found themselves garrisoned in the South Atlantic, a substantial boost to the Dad's Army Militia, the islands fielded. Falkland's governor, Sir Alan Cardinal, evacuated Stanley's children into the camp, the local term denoting any part of the islands outside of Stanley, derived from the Spanish word campo, meaning countryside. Ostensibly, the evacuation constituted a response to the projected Japanese invasion, but in reality, it opened up billets for the anticipated British garrison personnel and, if you read between the lines, decreased the likelihood of tensions, read underage pregnancies, that might arise from placing such a large contingent of young and healthy men with short wartime life expectancies, into a civilian population. But I'm a cynic, and I bore me. In May 1941, the HMS Cornwall sank the Penguin. 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 Penguins. Penguin. Penguin. In November 1943, the last of the merchant raiders sent out from Germany, the Michel, 
was intercepted by United States Navy submarine Tarpon, 50 nautical miles off the coast of Japan, where the Germans sought to refit and victual for a second time in Yokohama. The Tarpon launched eight of the notoriously unreliable Mark 14 torpedoes, four of which hit their mark and detonated. 290 crew went down with the ship. 116 crew survived in lifeboats and made it to Japan. The German surface raiders sank 142 Allied ships and captured more in the two years they operated as a supplement to Admiral Dönitz's growing U-boat fleet and made their effects felt long beyond the Tarpon's torpedo attack. That the Tarpon knocked the last of the merchant raiders out of the fight didn't prevent the damage the initiative did to merchant and naval shipping in the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian and Southern Oceans, echoing on after the Michelle's sinking. A lot of the value of submarines, mines and disguised auxiliary cruisers is the fear that they generate. They had to cause damage to demonstrate their abilities couldn't be ignored, but the fear they generated multiplied their effectiveness well beyond what they actually achieved in engagements. Such hidden threats forced skippers and naval tacticians and strategists to avoid using particular areas or to convoy their ships in ungainly formations restricted to the speed of the slowest vessel, whether they observed the threat directly or not. That no German merchant raiders remained on the world's oceans after November 1943 didn't lead to an immediate end to the precautions taken against them, and it's on the basis that such German ships might make use of existing infrastructure in Antarctic waters that Britain justified, though rationalised might be a more apt word, the project at the centre of this tranche of episodes, Operation Tabern. Naval Party 475, eventually taking the name Operation Tabern, arose in 1943, predicated on the need for surveillance of high latitudes southern waterways, in order to report the activity of merchant raiders, even though British naval intelligence knew the bulk of the threat lay in the past, and Nazi Germany was, on paper, losing the war. Where some wars ended, when the outcome became clear to the generals involved, the atrocities committed under Nazi leadership required the people who committed them to fight to the death, or at least or at least to the complete dissolution of the thing in whose names they committed those atrocities, Nazi Germany. To digress for a moment, there's horrific logic behind atrocity in that if you can sufficiently dehumanise those people you want wiped out, you can enable your troops to treat them as less than human, and thereby to cement their undying loyalty to your cause. If you've inspired your countrymen to make lampshades out of people, those countrymen can't ever turn back and pretend they never really liked you and what you stood for. So it's in the interest of any megalomaniac leader to push for atrocity from those in their thrall because they know those people will then do almost anything to avoid ever facing the consequences of their actions. There's a variety of ways of encouraging someone to fight to the death on your behalf, but the dehumanising power of religious intolerance is the shortest shortcut anyone ever found, and the Nazis employed it to a degree that the world hadn't witnessed since Tamerlane. In 1939, Hitler stomped all over Europe while Britain dropped leaflets and licked its wounds. In 1940, Britain fought with its back to the wall and scraped by. In 1941, Hitler kicked off Operation Barbarossa, and while the repercussions took some time to shake out, that commitment to fighting on two fronts, one of them pitting Germany against the population and industry of Soviet Russia, was the linchpin in the eventual Nazi defeat. 
1942, the USA joined the fight. In 1943, Germany fought enemies on every front and, and, facing imminent withdrawal from previously blitzkrieged territories, suddenly looked to fall short in a number of important strategic materials. They couldn't sue for peace given the genocide the Nazis instituted, so they fought on and bloody on until Germany was rubble and the chief rat left the sinking ship through suicide. Fucking coward from the word go. Seriously, the whining, failed artist, triad bohemian, wildly flatulent vegetarian, described in episode zero of Robert Evans' excellent podcast series, Behind the Bastards, warranted contempt long before he caused the deaths of tens of millions of people. Watch the hipsters in your circle. They all think they're an unrecognised genius too. If they ever start talking about race science, give them the bricking they deserve before they find any traction. So with that in mind, why the sudden urge to get south and monitor non-existent German merchant raider activity? Because of the 1942 movements of the Armada della Repubblica Argentina vessel Primero de Mayo, under the auspices of the Comisión Nacional del Antarctico, is why. The sequence of events leading up to the Argentine Navy sending this transport vessel to Deception Island through the Gerlache Strait and into the Melchior Islands, trashing the Usase East Base, painting the Argentine Tribund on the whale oil tanks, raising their flag on the shores and erecting a navigation beacon in Dolman Bay along the way, will receive more attention in an episode dedicated to the Argentine Antarctic Territorial Claim, slated for once Tabarin receives its due. And after I learned to read Spanish well enough to make full use of the books covering the topic. A side project that's coming along muy bueno. Gracias. British territorial bureaucrats, happier to let matters lie than ever make a decision that might rain consequences down upon them, couldn't ignore the Argentine surveying and flag-raising and navigation marker erections, which sounds like a cue for some Sid James dialogue with a maritime bent, if ever I gave you one. Any time British bureaucrats mentioned Antarctica to their Argentine counterparts, the chagrin-inspiring fact of their Argentine meteorological and philatelic occupation of Laurie Island in the south since 1904 off the back of William Spears Bruce's Scottish Antarctic expedition came up. So the only available path to trumping this new incursion into a space Britain thought of as belonging to Britain, based on discovery and dead sledges, was occupation. Hypothetically possible but realistically and actually non-existent German merchant raiders would serve as the explicitly stated reason for that occupation, but, like the hypothetically possible Japanese invasion force threatening the Falklands, this was a rationalisation where Argentine history and ambition stood as the justification. A second Antarctic voyage by the Primero de Mayo, carrying Chilean observers for that extra soupçon of annoying international credibility, ramped up the pressure to act. More on this Patagonian cooperation in future episodes. The Royal Navy tasked the Carnarvon Castle back at sea after its repairs in Montevideo with a visit to Deception Island. A shore party found an Argentine brass cylinder containing a territorial claim document buried at the foot of an aggressively appointed flagpole flying the Argentine flag. They removed the cylinder and the flag and its nail-studded flagstaff replacing it with a Union Jack on a stick and four signs stating British Crown Land at prominent sites around the shoreline. 
Red oxide paint went over the Argentine triband painted prominently on the giant oil tank. They repeated these fence post pissing efforts at Sydney Island in the South Orkneys and paid a visit to Orcadis Station on Laurie Island. The Argentine meteorologists and postmaster didn't buy the we're just here looking for the Germans. Have you seen any Germans? Routine. And the resulting radio traffic to Buenos Aires saw the Primero de Mayo heading south once more. The Argentines removed all the shiny British territorial markers and pissed on the fence posts once again in their turn. Things were really heating up. Something more must be done. The Foreign Office didn't want to issue any complaint for fear of upsetting matters for those British companies with substantial investments in Argentina, or of knackering British imports of Argentine beef, helping feed the nation at a time when European imports came at extremely high prices. The Colonial Office pressed hard for occupation, to the annoyance of the Royal Navy strategists, who saw much better uses for their ships at that point in 20th century history. To date, the preoccupation with occupation displayed by the USA and Argentina went largely ignored by Britain, more out of convenience than the international validity of the British assertion that discovery and exploration fitted the criteria for territorial claims on and sustained sovereignty over an area. On the 28th of January 1943, the British War Cabinet decided that, quote, all possible steps should be taken to strengthen our title to the Antarctic dependencies of the Falkland Islands against which the Argentines were encroaching. Unquote. Churchill signed off on the initiative, though he'd later question what fighting men were doing in the far south, surveying the penguins and counting the landscape. He had a lot on his mind at the time. The colonial office imperative suited the foreign office desire to not tread on diplomatic toes and the Royal Navy had to buckle down and do what the bureaucrats wanted, though they found a way to make it happen so as to cause the absolute minimum disruption to the Royal Navy's ability to sustain the blockades, convoys, patrols and incursions, taking up its time and resources and killing its sailors in its role as the only British military service engaged against Germany continuously and entirely since the declaration of war in 1939. What might have amounted to a platoon of miserable squatties living on a rock in the snow for indeterminate and interminable periods for the sake of occupying space ended up being a lot more, and the credit for a lot of that lot more, which eventually became one of the most involved and storied national Antarctic research programs in Antarctica, lies largely with three Antarctic veterans and ice coffee alumni, James Wordy, scientist aboard the Endurance during the ITAE, co-founder of the Scott Polar Research Institute in company with Frank Debenham and Raymond Priestley, and mentor to a generation of British polar explorers through his lecturing at Cambridge and his expeditions to Greenland, Brian Roberts, ornithologist during the British Graham Land expedition, and who ended up in naval intelligence because his eyesight wasn't good enough for him to take up the Royal Navy Commission his experience and intellect otherwise warranted, and Neil McIntosh, head of the Discovery Institute, world expert on whales and southern ocean biology, and who knew where they could get a hold of an ice-capable ship and crew presently lying idle. Wordy and Roberts spent the early years of the war working together on Blue Book field guides on Greenland, Spitsbergen, Iceland, and a range of cold climate minutiae the war made suddenly valuable to the Royal Navy personnel. Brief digression, the Blue Books, officially the Naval Intelligence Division Geographical Handbook series, quickly drew together geographic economic, cultural and historical information about countries that the British military services might find themselves in during the war. 
At the time, they constituted the largest body of published geographic information to date. Today, they're out of date on just about every front other than the location of mountains, but make interesting reading as a snapshot of historical facts, albeit seen through a British lens. While it's not strictly analogous, anyone who's consulted the CIA World Fact website for a rough overview of a nation they previously knew nothing about will understand the value of such documents, even if the document's origins are distasteful. Fuck the CIA. Wordy and Macintosh formed the nucleus of an advisory committee for the Occupation Initiative, aided unofficially by Roberts until he copped the sack from his boss in Naval Intelligence because he kept assisting Wordy's new project, to the detriment of his responsibilities in the Blue Book series. Freed of naval intelligence duties, Roberts formally joined the committee. Helmed by these three Antarctic veterans, Naval Party 475 became far more than the miserable squaddies occupying space it might have been. If you're sending people south to occupy space anyway, why not make those people scientists and get some research knocked out while you're at it? That's scientists for you. Hmm... A chance to do my bit for king and country, you say? I'm all over it. This? Oh, well, this is my entire laboratory and sampling array. I take it with me everywhere, don't you know? Knowledge greeds like that, and I have zero problems with anyone who sees and seizes every opportunity to advance our understanding of the reality we occupy off the back of their other duties. Deception Island already offered solidly constructed buildings and wharf facilities which just so happened not to receive naval gunfire during the Carnarvon Castle's visits, and therefore stood as a sound candidate for a radio relay station and stores and equipment depot, servicing a second base on the continent itself. The luck! Hope Bay on the Trinity Peninsula, last mentioned in the series in episode 25 covering the Swedish expedition under Nordenkveld appeared to offer the greatest scope to consolidate on and extend from the sound work of the British Grahamland expedition. I don't know why military initiatives take on names instead of numbers, but I do know the names are selected with an ear for not giving any information about the project away. So the initial selection of Operation Bransfield received the Red X for holding too close an association to British territorial claims in Antarctica. The Belle Tabarin is harder to work into song lyrics with compelling scan than Moulin Rouge, and so fell out of the popular consciousness, where the latter remains well known. But the two Parisian music halls ran parallel for many years, and a lot of the same performers, directors and staff passed between the two establishments. Operation Tabarin took its name from the Parisian establishment for unclear reasons, possible etymologies mapping two separate paths, but both pertain to the club being noisy, cluttered and operating mostly at night. Any reference to frilly knickers was likely coincidental, and if that's where your mind went, you might know something about the Royal Navy or British scientists of that era that I'm not yet privy to. Mackintosh put Shackleton's Boy Scout, one of Britain's most experienced Southern Ocean sailors and high-latitudes researchers at that point, forward as a potential leader for the projects. After sailing aboard the Quest, James Marr headed north with Frank Worsley aboard the island, a project originally slated to compete for the first aerial visit to the North Pole, but which turned into a meandering northerly repeat of the Shackleton Rowett expedition due to funds falling well short of those required to purchase an airship. Marr joined the Discovery Institute in 1927, and other than a secondment to Mawson's Banzari expeditions, 
spent the remaining pre-war years operating in the Southern Ocean aboard the William Scoresbury and the Discovery II. He was sampling plankton aboard the Discovery II when the orders came through that they should quit their science south of South Africa and head to Melbourne to refit for a rescue voyage in the Ross Sea to aid the missing Lincoln Ellsworth and Herbert Hollick Kenyon. At the outbreak of war between Britain and Germany, he headed south aboard the whaling factory vessel Tate Viking on the behalf of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research to see if frozen whale meat might serve British interests while the war footing held. He received notice of the committee's interest in his experience while serving as a Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve Lieutenant, a role that saw him aboard a mine layer operating throughout the Atlantic with periods at a shore station in Scotland. He accepted the new role and its attendant promotion to Lieutenant Commander, a small jump but one considered potentially important if the adventure south resulted in a confrontation with an Argentine shore party, likely led by a lieutenant at most. The committee sent Ma to Iceland to seek a suitable vessel for the transit to the Falklands from the few not already commandeered by the Royal Navy. He selected a sealer, the Vesla Carai, which headed to London for refit and renaming to the HMS Bransfield, the name just not lying down in the face of the need for secrecy. The committee drew together a team comprising the most experienced high-latitude operators and researchers to hand. The war carried a lot of British names already known to ice coffee listeners to the far-flung reaches of the Empire, so it's unsurprising that the list of the most experienced high-latitude operators and researchers to hand doesn't feature many familiar names. Royal Canadian Engineer Surveyor Captain Andrew Taylor came from a cold place and held some experience in working conditions far colder than those he would experience on the Antarctic Peninsula. Before I carry on here, I want to note that Elke Mackenzie is the name the lichenologist on the expedition chose for herself on her transition in 1971. Historical sticklers can stickle all they want. I don't dead name, and while you'll have to reconcile yourself to that as best you can... No. There is no conjunction to go there. It's my series, so it's my choice. And you can reconcile yourself with my choice, or fuck off. It's not like someone's going to lose a limb if they can't find the book published 30 years after their death and 50 years after their transition because the name I use doesn't match the one on the cover. I base my decision on an ethical tenet that doesn't have a name, but which runs Never Deliberately Cause Unwarranted Harm, which allows for accidents and necessary harm such as quarantine and vaccinations, while ruling out murder, rape, theft and cheating at cards, but I might just as easily have arrived at my position asking myself, would this annoy Trevor? Yes it would, therefore it is the correct thing to do. It's amazing how often those two ethical models align. Actually, no it's not. Dr Elkem Mackenzie worked on the lichen collection returned by the British Grahamland expedition and looked forward to pushing back the boundaries of lichen science on secondment from the British Museum, on paper. Her actual reason for accepting the expedition slot arose in a deeper and more personal question, could humanity and scientific progress hold value in the face of the war? The botanical collections at the museum took a hit during the bombing of London. Between the destruction of hundreds of years of careful taxonomic and systematic effort in an attempt to tear apart human flesh and human spirit, the botanist experienced existential rudderlessness. 
quoting extensively from Mackenzie's own writing, published in The Secret South. I had another purpose also to fulfil on the Antarctic continent, namely that of recovering or completely discarding faith in science and human progress by the contemplation of untouched nature and the microcosm of civilization represented by a dozen human beings isolated on a frozen continent. In the autumn of 1940, on arriving one morning at the British Museum in South Kensington, I found the botanical section roofless and burnt out, the herbarium cases open and deluged by the firemen's hoses. The specimens collected with infinite toil over the last 200 years, named and carefully studied by generations of botanists, half burnt and scattered in soggy wads among blackened woodwork and twisted girders. The acrid smell of wood smoke and charred paper assailed the nostrils, and we suffered a psychological trauma in that moment of time. From that day onwards began a hopeless race against time and the growth of the mould fungi as we peeled apart and dried out the pitiful remnants of what had once been one of the finest plant collections in the world. Our reactions to this catastrophe at the time were various. One of my older and wiser colleagues expressed the hope that the Royal Air Force would soon return the compliment by blasting and burning the collections of the Berlin Botanic Garden out of existence, and, indeed, in due course, this pious desire was fulfilled. To me, the event brought only mistrust in the usefulness of scientific effort, and an obsessive realisation that human progress depends, at any rate in our latitudes, entirely on good roofing and protection from the elements and is therefore something essentially artificial, fugacious, and undependable. The sight of the sacred volumes of our scientific lore mouldering in their charred and watery grave seemed a preliminary vision of what must come to all the effort which we lovingly expended during our brief contact with the physical universe. In the shadowed recesses of the British Museum at Bloomsbury, which had as yet remained untouched by aerial bombardment, the white plaster faces of the Greek philosophers continued to stare with their blank eyeballs into some obscure futurity above the heads of the living, and vouchsafed no encouragement or aid. Perhaps the fibrous, crudely hacked, ochre-bedaubed deities of Africa, upended in a neighbouring gallery, might have a message more relevant to our state and times. During the months to come, I hope to have an opportunity of gaining insight into this fundamental and obsessive problem. End of quoted section. In the short version, the deeply philosophical scientist wanted to know if our species and our scientific endeavours held merit beyond busy work. She thought she might find the answer to both questions in the isolation and challenges of Antarctica. Ship's carpenter Lewis Ashton held some Southern Ocean experience aboard the Discovery 2. Scottish geologist William Roberts Flett signed into the Gordon Highlanders in both World Wars, but was too young to be sent to the fighting in the first and too old in the second, and carried geological qualifications and no military commitments. Gordon Hawkins, who sailed the North Atlantic aboard the battleship HMS Rodney in 1941, during the final phase of the Royal Navy's sustained efforts to sink the Kriegsmarine battleship Bismarck, joined as meteorologist. Dr. Eric Back, a distant relative of Arctic explorer George Back, joined as medical officer and assistant meteorologist, trained into the Met OBS by Hawkins. James Fram Farrington from Northern Ireland, 
an experienced merchant mariner and a radio operator aboard the William Scoresby, and New Zealander Norman Lather joined as base radio operators. Tom Berry served as chief steward aboard the Discovery 2 and would winter as base cook. Boson Jock Matheson and leading seaman Charles Smith joined as general hands. Merchant seaman Gwyn Davies had been aboard the Today Viken on the same Southern Ocean whaling voyage as James Marr, sailed as stores officer, and Kenneth Blair signed on as handyman. In contrast to every other expedition of the preceding decade, the new British project lacked pilots, aviation mechanics and an airframe for them to aviate with. Wilkins' first flight over the peninsula in 1928 and every use of airframes since demonstrated the best bang for Antarctic exploration buck lay in broad-scope aerial surveys, ground truth by smaller scale overland control parties. The urgent need for pilots and aircraft fitters and riggers to ply their trades in service of the Allied war effort precluded assigning an aviation contingent to Tabarin. Ma led his team south to occupy space first and to explore and science second and third respectively. Chippy Ashton, thrown into quartermaster duty by dint of turning up first, struggled to bring together the extensive list of stores and equipment the committee handed him. Spitzbergen model prefabricated huts, sledges, meteorological instruments, skis, laboratory equipment and consumables, radio sets, all expensive clobber but nothing rare as hen's teeth in the pre-war years. But with Britain years into its war footing and having barely staved off defeat just two years prior, every article listed required a lot of cajolery and calls for people higher up the chain of command to place pressure on manufacturers and supply chains. The transmitters in the radio sets ordered for the operation comprised shortwave units capable of covering hundreds but not thousands of kilometres. At a time when Bird already demonstrated the right combination of power and antennae could span half the globe, the Foreign Office didn't want to poke Argentina with regular reminders that Britain set up shop in spaces and sometimes on sites that explicitly nominated as their own. They wanted Argentina to know Britain was there, but to not remind them of that fact too often. A weird political game of, I'm not touching you, can't get mad, but I really am touching you, just not telling you about it so you don't get mad. Chippy muddled along until someone on the committee noticed he was neither use nor ornament with a phone in his hand and passed the task along to one of his more recently arrived colleagues, freeing the carpenter to attend full-time to the refit of the Bransfield. The Bransfield, captained by Victor Marchese, rapidly bulked out under the volume of stores accumulating for the expedition, forcing Ma to find alternate berths southward for Taylor, Hawkins and several tons of stores aboard a beef freighter a separated party rendezvousing with the expedition in Buenos Aires. Leaking freshwater tanks delayed the Bransfield's departure from Tilbury to mid-November. Assigned to travel with a six-knot convoy under escort from a French destroyer, the Bransfield, already under the pump to keep pace with its six-knot contemporaries, developed a violent vibration in its two-blade screw and fell badly behind. Captain Marchese put in at Portsmouth for mechanical TLC, after which, Operation Tabarin sailed on south on its own. Then, they put him at Falmouth to repair a leak that came on so bad in a Force 9 gale that the engineer asked that they heave to in order to put the bulk of the main engine power into working the pumps. 
The Bransfield eventually reached the Falkland Islands via Montevideo, and the expedition transferred to the ships the William Scoresby and the Fitzroy. Falkland's governor, Sir Alan Cardinal, a colonial service careerist, felt tremendous enthusiasm for consolidating the southern extremities of the Falkland Islands dependencies and, with the assistance of the Falkland Islands Company director, David Roberts, made the Fitzroy available in spite of its lack of ice strengthening and the impossibility of ensuring it against damage in the secret mission Operation Tabarin constituted. The Fitzroy was, at the time, the island's only bridge to the outside world, so if anything happened to it while outside the bounds of its insurance policy, the FIC and the FI themselves were effectively effed. The ships departed Stanley in late January 1944, the Fitzroy carrying three civilians bound for South Georgia after the unofficial and secret tabarin detour southward, radio operator Tim Hawley, his wife Gladys, and their daughter Dawn. The documentation Ma received from Whitehall concerning his duties in the South included a thick, anonymously authored, bureaucrats gonna crack, series of if-then statements mapping the required response in any imaginable encounter with Argentine or Chilean naval vessels or shore parties. Given the speed with which the project required Ma bring together his team and resources and get moving, it was a big ask for Whitehall to expect a sailor scientist to digest and embody this delicately measured diplomatic time bomb and the responsibility of representing the Empire on the ground while holding the future of Antarctic research ambitions of many colleagues in his hands weighed on Ma's mind. Where the plucky former Boy Scout threw himself into previous southern forays with enthusiasm and aplomb, leadership, particularly during a war and in the face of potential aggression from Patagonian interests, hung heavy on his shoulders. First stop, Whalers Bay, Deception Island. They got the Union Jack flying again and removed the new Argentine territorial artefacts. The red patch painted over the Argentine flag on the oil tanks still shows today, but more from the brief respite from the weather the layers of paint offered the underlying steel than because the paint's still there. I doubt anyone cleaned and primed the surface before they started the pigment pissing contest. The Deception Island contingent, comprising Matheson, Smith, Lather, Hawkins, and led by Flett, who was also to act as magistrate and postmaster, would occupy Base B, formerly the Magistrate's Building and the Whalers' Dormitory. With the shoreside jetties in a poor state and the waters alongside them shallow, the ships lowered a motor launch and two scows for unloading. The crew lashed the scows together and decked them over to act as a barge, and the motor launch towed them to shore and back from dawn to dusk. The selected accommodation building required only a bit of cleaning, a new coal range, and some repairs to broken windows to become livable, and once later got the radio set installed and running, with some batteries on loan from the ships after a third of the poorly packed accumulators assigned for the base were found broken in transit, they were good to start their southern vigil watching for the Germans. And I made air quotes there. Matheson scavenged bustion stoves from around the site, likely of the same model as designed by the first man to sail solo around the world, Joshua Slocum, love you dad, and fitted one to each of the five rooms selected for personal occupation. The official enamelled tin flag proclaiming British sovereignty took pride of place on the foreshore, and a white-topped table, once decorated with the appropriate heraldry and verbiage, 
and laid on its side and guide in place, served as a secondary seaward facing indication of British sovereignty. The summer air temperatures and geothermal activity of Whalers Bay proved too warm to safely store the meat supply brought south, and the local wildlife stood in, albeit involuntarily. It was also too cold for the fresh fruit and veg brought from the Falklands, so the larder available to Smith proved spartan compared to that which Berry worked with further south. Eager to geologise far and wide, Flett restricted his movements to within a few hours walk of base B, so as to be on hand as leader and magistrate should any ship turn up. Matheson worked on the dinghy to make a more seaworthy vessel, adding standing rigging and oars made of timber salvaged from the station. Once the likelihood of unannounced visitors faded with the shortening days, Flett used this boat to visit sites around Port Foster until the sea ice formed. Warmed unevenly by geothermal springs, the sea ice inside the caldera never formed thick enough to inspire confidence as a sledging or skiing surface, restricting excursions to the shorelines and slopes. Some of those expeditions slated to carry on to Hope Bay, scavenged among the whaling station for equipment or stores that might prove useful, and filled the recently emptied spaces on the ships with timber, sheet iron, wiring, piping, furniture and a bathtub. Another Argentine copper claiming cylinder came to light and went into Captain Marchese's possession for carriage to Governor Cardinal. The ships departed Deception Island on the evening of the 6th of February, reaching Antarctic Sound the following morning. The William Scoresby, better built to withstand ice battering, reconnoitred into Hope Bay while the Fitzroy hove to in Bransfield Strait, its first encounter with pack in Antarctic Sound having put the wind up Captain Pitt and Falkland Islands Company director, Roberts. Ma led a shore party and liked what the Hope Bay coast offered both in terms of a hut site and of access to fertile ground for geologising, surveying and paths to sledge further afield for more of the same. Ma's satisfaction with the site didn't outweigh Captain Pitt and director Roberts reservations over keeping the Fitzroy in Antarctic Sound for the week it might take to unload the full range of stores they definitely weren't willing to sail into Hope Bay itself for fear a shift in ice conditions might see the ship trapped there, leaving the Falkland Islands without its supply vessel and South Georgia short its replacement radio operator for no reason anyone dealing with outside agencies or the Falkland Island Company's insurers could acknowledge. Captain Pitt didn't even like contemplating keeping the ship in Antarctic Sound while the William Scoresby double-handled the Fitzroy's cargo ashore in relay. Ma conceded the point, and the ships began working down the western side of the peninsula, seeking an alternate site, but the previous buoyant enthusiasm for the mission turned apprehensive and impatient. 